So if we say, I love God, but you're unwilling to get to know God, you're unwilling to lean in to grow in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then you can't say, I really want to love him. I really want to know him. You're listening to a sermon series titled Apostles' Creed, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. begin a new series today in the Apostles' Creed. You might say, well, that seems a little bit different. We're going to get into it today. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, open with me to the first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What do Christians believe about Jesus Christ? What do Christians believe about the Bible, about truth, about ethics? Every two years, Ligonier Ministries does a state of theology survey to take the theological temperature of people in our country so that we can help Christians better understand what the culture believes, where the culture is at, and will ultimately the church with better insights for discipleship. So three excerpts from survey. And so they make a statement and they ask you, do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? So here's the first statement. They said Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, 52% of America uh, believes that that's true. They agree with that statement, that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 36% disagree. I don't know where the rest of them fall, but 36% disagree. But here's the scary part. 30% of evangelicals agree with that. They would say as Christians, oh yeah, Jesus was not God. 30%. How about this statement? The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Notice how this has gone up and has swung up in the last few years. In 2014, about 41% agreed with that. Now, six years later, 48% of people uh, who are polled agree that the Bible's not literally true. Uh, So just about every other person you talk to then this one is very disturbing. This statement was that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which is a false God. 42% of evangelicals agree with that, that God does uh, receive the worship of uh, Muslims. Now, is it really important to know what we believe and why we believe it? Is that important? Yeah, very good. It should be. First service wasn't really awake, so you guys are good. If you don't believe that Jesus was God, then you can just readily dismiss his truth claims and just begin to adopt other beliefs. You start to look in the Bible and say, well, part of this is inspired and part of that is inspired. And now you are a Dalmatian in your theology. There's a spot here and a spot there. And I'm just going to take on a belief here and an adopt belief there. Uh, And basically you begin to say, yeah, the self-righteous religious teachings of Judaism and Islam, which are works-based, and Islam is based on a false god, um, could also be true. Or if you said, yeah, the Bible contains some aspects of truth, but is not literally true, then what happens is you begin to be open to an interpretive idea of gender, sexuality, 
marriage, goodness, justice, righteousness, and truth, just to name a few. And all of those areas are areas our culture is beginning to, our Christians are beginning to lose the conversation in the culture because we don't know what we believe and we don't know why we believe it. In fact, we've even allowed modern worship songs to incorporate lyrics that falsely describe the love of God using bad words like reckless or even worse, they have words like evolution describing God's work in the world. But hey, they have that catchy guitar riff and that kick and melody, so let's keep them in the worship set. The average Christian today sounds a lot like the coal miner that uh, George Whitfield was speaking to. George Whitfield was speaking in rural England to a coal miner, and he went up to him and he said, man, what do you believe? Of course, with a British accent, he said that. Um, I'm not even going to attempt it. Um, and the man said, well, I believe the same as the church. And he said, well, what does the church believe? And he said, well, the church believes the same as me. Uh, and then he's, he's just like, I'm getting nowhere. So he said, okay, and what is it that you and the church both believe? And he said, well, I suppose the same thing. <laughs> he's not getting anywhere. And I wonder if that's where the average American Christian is today, where they can't articulate what they believe and why they believe it. Here's what Albert Moeller in his book, The Apostles' Creed, says. He says, there's no Christianity in general. Faith in some experience devoid of theological or biblical content, no matter how powerful, is not New Testament Christianity. Those called to Christianity in general may believe nothing in particular, but faith resides in particulars. You see, since the inception of the church, Christians have summarized our particular beliefs into simple statements. These are statements that we can recite. These are statements that we can sing. These are even statements that we memorize, and we call these summaries creeds. A creed is simply a summary of doctrine or doctrinal statements, it's a formal statement of what we hold to, what we believe, what we're willing to die for. And one of the earliest summaries of what we believe, the earliest creed, is known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, this is sometimes misunderstood as a title. Some people hear the Apostles' Creed and church legend, because it's not church history here, church legend has it that all 12 of the apostles wrote down a thing and a little aspect to it and put it in and they did the blender and that out came the Apostles' Creed. And that's not exactly what happened. Um, most scholars dismiss that. Um, the idea is that the apostles would have affirmed this, but the earliest um, date that we have, we have evidence around the mid-fourth century that this existed. There is proof that it may have existed prior to that. And later they added a phrase here or a phrase there. By the 7th or 8th, uh, or, uh, yeah, 7th or 8th century AD, it was fully used uh, in the form that we have today. And so for that reason, the Apostles' Creed is the most commonly confessed doctrinal statement in all of Christian history. Throughout the last thousand plus years of the church, new believers have learned the Apostles' Creed. Uh, children have memorized it. Martyrs have confessed it as they burned at the stake. And heretics, well, they've rejected some aspect of the Apostles' Creed. So what we're going to do is we're going to study it for the next three weeks. What I love to do at the end of a year, the beginning of a new year, is to give us a foundational reason for why we believe what we believe. And this year, we found it very beneficial to go through what most Christians have believed for thousands of years, 
which is the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to look at three different sections of it for three weeks. We'll look at the first section today. We'll look at the uh, work of Christ next week and the work of the Holy Spirit in the third week. So I'm just going to put it on the screen and notice with me, the Apostles' Creed says this. We kind of just heard it in the opening video, but I'm going to read it again. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It's my goal by the third week to not have to use the screen. I'm going to hopefully memorize this. Hold me accountable. Uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We'll cover that section next week. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic. Some of you had a, had a meltdown when you saw the video. <laughs> Catholic. What, what type of church is this? We're out of here. The word just means universal. So calm down. Don't email me later, okay? It just means universal. Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, some of you remember reciting this in a liturgical, traditional, formal church setting as a child, and you're getting giddy. You're like, yes, I'm excited to study this. Finally, you're leaning forward. Some of you remember reciting this as a child in a liturgical, formal church setting, and you're leaning backward, angry that we're doing this because you don't like the memories that you had growing up. And you're wondering, if it's not the Bible that we're studying, then do the elders know about this? And do we need to talk? And what is going on here? So let me just give this as a caveat. Almost every sermon that's preached here at Shoreline is what we call expositional. That's not a phrase to impress you. You can see the root word expose in exposition. So the idea is that we take the scripture, which is inspired by God, by the spirit of God, and we expose it. We just let the text speak for itself. I don't come with my agenda to make the text say what I want it to say. I let the text speak for itself and it's going to inform what we learn and we go verse by verse through it and not just pick apart what we want to talk about. Let's talk about God's love again. Let's talk about, you know, uh, faith again. Let's talk about giving because this is important and we have a building fund. No, we just let the scripture speak for itself. Uh, and so on rare occasion, what we'll do is we'll say, let's see what the Bible says about this theme, but we're still going to expose the scripture. And we're going to let all the scripture um, speak on a theme. Uh, uh, and so I just want to make you uh, aware that what we're doing in this series is a little bit different. I'm not interested in preaching a creed verse by verse. That's not what I'm interested in doing. Because the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is not an inspired text. Okay? But what we are going to do is read the uninspired text, which points us to the truth of scripture, and then we're going to open scripture and let scripture inform us in truth as we look at different verses. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to a lot of places every week. And I know we don't really don't do that. We stay in Jonah chapter 3, right? Um, so we're going to be bouncing around a lot. If you have your Bibles, this might be a good year to memorize the books of the Bible so that you're not that guy going, he mentioned Habakkuk. Where is that in my Bible? Uh, and so it'd be a good time to do that as well as reading through the scriptures this year. So as a pastor, I'm excited for this study uh, because I believe we as a church are going to be equipped to explain with clarity what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, so kind of like the moon reflects the light of the sun, 
Learning the Apostles' Creed is going to help point out uh, to us the Word of God where the true light and power reside. Amen? So we're going to break this down into three sections, and I'm just going to put the first section that we're going to look at today on the screen, and you'll note the first two words of the Apostles' Creed are I believe. Can you say that with me? I believe. This is a personal and an individual beginning to the creed. I believe. It is believed that the Apostles' Creed began as a confession that men and women would make at their own individual personal baptism. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we had a, a beach baptism. It was glorious. We had seven people baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and at that time, they shared a confession. This is what Christ has done in my life. So it's believed by many that the Apostles' Creed would be what you would recite saying, I believe this. And this is what I believe. Uh, now, I, I love that it does not say, this is my parents. My parents believe in God the Father. My spouse believes in God the Father, so I'm good. No, it's I believe. I've made a personal confession of faith in God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So even though what I believe is personal, what we believe is not a matter of personal preference. Let me explain this. I believe ultimately within the church is we believe. So I don't just come and say, well, yeah, I mean, you believe that. I believe some different things, but I'm still a Christian. No, every true Christian holds to the same orthodox beliefs. Okay, so let me say that again. Every true Christian holds to the same orthodox beliefs. So if you confess to being a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah. I, or the worst thing nowadays, people are saying, I identify. I identify as a Christian. Okay, that's even worse. If you're going to confess to being a Christian, but you do not believe in the orthodox beliefs that define Christianity, like what the Apostles' Creed outlines, then you cannot confess to truly being a Christian. I mean, you can tell me you're a vegan all day long who eats meat every day, but I'm not going to call you a vegan. You can say all day long, I'm a Christian, uh, and I identify as a Christian, but if what you believe is not what all true Christians believe, then you're using the phrase erroneously. So, notice that the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We as Christians believe there is only one God who has been and who will always be. And that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you'll see in the creed. And he is the creator. Now, I told you to go to Genesis 1. Look at verse 1 with me. This is the foundation of all of Scripture, the most important verse you could say that all of Scripture hinges on. And that's out of the gate from the very first words of Scripture, the Bible affirms, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And God, notice, created the heavens and the earth. Now, how did God do this? How is the Father Almighty the creator? Well, you and I are creative, but that's not what the word means. It doesn't just mean he's creative. He's a creative guy. No, he is the creator. And how he created was by speaking all things into existence. Just think about that for a minute. God, with a word, said light, and light existed. With just a word, day, night, and it existed. With just a word spoken, galaxies were formed. Just the, I have some pictures on the screen. God said, Canis Majoris. And he may not have said that. That's what we call it. But that is one of the biggest stars. It's called the big dog, Canis Majoris, the big dog star. 
uh, and it came to be. I don't know if you said this, but God said what we call Saturn. And as he said that, Saturn existed. Some of you saw that in your high-tech telescopes this last week. You were looking through. You were that guy in the backyard looking through, and you saw Saturn and Jupiter kind of coming into alignment, the Bethlehem Christmas star. But God spoke that planet into existence. I don't know how to pronounce this, but the animal known as the Okapi, I think. Uh, God just spoke, and it was formed. Uh, God spoke the word and the panda was born. I said in first service there was pandemonium, but that didn't go over too well. I don't want to say that today. My dad jokes are getting worse as I get older. It's really getting bad. Amen, right? God with a word, and I didn't even know this was an animal. Okay, this is like, I learned something this week. God with a word said narwhal, and the narwhal, it is an animal. I thought it was a fictional animal. It's a real thing. Uh, Now, I know we think we're fancy with Siri and Google and Alexa, and we try to flex and impress our family at at our house, and we go, hey, play music. And we just say the words, and music begins to play. We just say, turn on the lights, and the lights turn on. Oh, let there be light. We just say, you know, set the temperature to 72, and it just happens. Like, we spoke it into existence. But let's not fool ourselves. The device that did the actual work is plugged into power that came from FPL. That was not your power that spoke the light into existence, right? So you and I, we have the canvas, we need the canvas and the paint supplies to do the creative work. In other words, we have to rely on something that's already created to do the creating. And yet God creates what's called ex nihilo, meaning he creates out of nothing. He just, with no light to begin with, says light and there's light. And so there are two categories that exist. There is creator and creation. And to understand God as creator means God is infinite, God is omnipotent, God is independent of his creation, and God is eternal. So God exists outside of time and space. The phrase that theologians love to use is that God is sui generis. In other words, he is unique, he is distinct from anything in and of creation. He's not in that He's in the category of creator, and everything else is in the category of creation. You and I are not independent of creation. God is. And so God can exist apart distinct from his creation. There's this notion that like God created because he was lonely, and he needed us, and he's relying upon us. That is just a silly notion. God is completely independent and doesn't rely on his creation. You and I, not so. Like, Don't test this, but we can live about 40 days without food. Please don't test this. Uh, you know, a new diet. No, let's not do that for 2021. Uh, you cannot live more than 40 days without food. You can't live more than three days without water. You can't live more than five minutes or so without oxygen. We rely on these things for life. And the planet Earth relies on our sun to have sustainable life. You take away the sun and, well, we'll start floating, but life will not uh, continue on earth. Um, Some creatures rely on other creatures. They're in this symbiotic relationship. You take away one, the other one fails. If you don't believe me, just look at Sonny and Cher, okay? You take one away and you just have Sonny. Okay, so God is sui, bad example, all right? God is sui generis. He is distinct from all creation in the sense that he is the creator. He's not reliant upon his creation. Albert Moeller, again, says this. He says, in the beginning, God, If we truly grasp this opening phrase of scripture, then the rest of our theological conviction will fall rightly into place. But if we fail to truly understand these opening words, we may find ourselves on the quick road to idolatry. You see, you and I believe in 
one God who has been and who always will be, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God is the creator. And if we don't believe that, if we're open to other beliefs, then it will slide us into heresy. Let me give you a couple heresies about God on the screen if you're taking note. Here's a few things that are false views about God. Uh, the first is deism. Deism is not theism. This belief is that God is not a father. He's just a distant creator who no longer intervenes with his creation. He has abandoned us. And many people uh, in time have believed in deism. Uh, there, of course, is Arianism, which is the foundation of Jehovah's Witnesses, which is that God is one in being and one in person, that the Father is not God, or I'm sorry, the Father alone is God, but the Son is not. Uh, uh, he's just a creation. Jesus is created by the Father. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person, just a presence or power manifested of the Father. Of course, the Eastern thought of Hinduism and Buddhism would believe the universe is uncreated, it's eternal, there is no creator, there's no beginning or end uh, or stream of time as we perceive it. A lot of uh, new age spirituality would say Mother Earth to fill in the gap there. We're just kind of children of Earth and God is everywhere. Uh, of course, Darwinian evolution uh, believes that our ancestors did not have, they weren't created, there was a big bang and so stardust turned into fish which turned into Uncle Gary. And so that's where we came from. There was no, no loving, benevolent, hands-on creator, uh, just, uh, just chaos and chance. And then, of course, Scientology. And this is a lot of fun. Scientology believes that we came from aliens 75 million years ago. Uh, and Xenu was the one who brought billions of people to Earth. So that's lots of fun. Tom Cruise believes that. But the scriptures reveal to us a personal, benevolent, gracious, an all-powerful Trinitarian God. In fact, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 40, 28. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh, the Lord, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, I told you we we're going to go a couple of places. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 14. Let's go to Psalm 14. As we read Psalm 14 by David, you're going to recognize this, and then we're going to go to the place you recognize it from. So look at Psalm 14, verse 1 with me. David says this. Again, this is speaking about God the Father. He says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord, Yahweh, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, uh, who seek after God. Are there? Well, verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, you probably recognize that verse. The reason you recognize that, rightly so, is because it uh, was written or, or borrowed, quoted by Paul the Apostle in his letter to the Romans, where he explains, like the psalmist David here in Psalm 14, that, listen, atheism is not an expression of truth, but a suppression of truth. Does that make sense? If you're an atheist, you're not expressing truth, you're suppressing truth. It's not the wise man or the scholar who declares, there's no God, it's the fool. And the fool does that, they suppress that knowledge, 
the knowledge of an almighty creator God, they do that because the motive and the outcome of suppressing the truth of God is wickedness. They ultimately want to walk in wickedness. That's the motive. And that is the outcome. If you do suppress the truth of God, it leads to wickedness. And so Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. That's where you heard that. So let's go there. Romans chapter 1. I warned you guys in advance. We're going to be going to a bunch of places in Scripture. Uh, this is one that you definitely want to highlight. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Here's what it says, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God, it's a phrase you don't hear a lot in church, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, here it is, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, not the things in the world, the men who suppress the truth, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming lies as every atheist does, they became fools. And notice what happens next. Press the truth of God in wickedness you also, secondly, exchange God's glory for the creation. It says they of the God category for the second, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and things. But note with me that Paul says men and women are without excuse. God is almighty, is the creator, and people suppress that truth that's revealed to us in a general knowledge type way general revelation in creation. They'll suppress that, and thus they're without excuse. But don't miss the fact that the creed emphasizes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Don't miss that part. You see, we as Christians do not believe in three gods, nor do we believe in three projections or modes of the same person. We believe in one God in three persons. I like to say that God is one in essence, three in person. One in essence, three in person. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons, but each one is fully God, and there is only one God. Does that clear it up for you? Sometimes we, we try to use a human analogy to describe something in the second category, creation, for the omniscient, omnipotent, almighty God who exists outside of creation. So we try to use creation to explain another category that creation can't explain. So we say, like, uh, let's get a three-leaf clover. And let's describe, it's one leaf, but it's three leaves. I'm sorry, Patrick, that's modalism. Like, we went the wrong route there. Or we'll say, I'm a dad, and I'm a husband, and I'm a son, but I'm one person. Well, that's also modalism, and that's heresy. So there's really no corresponding way of explaining the Trinity about ice and water and steam. No, it's still modalism. So uh, Philippians, let me give you three verses. Philippians 1-2, I'm not going to put them on the screen, but Philippians 1-2 says that the Father is God. Titus 2.13, Titus 2.13 says Jesus is God. Acts 5, 3 and 4, Acts 5, 3 and 4 says the Holy Spirit is God. But as one person has said, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Jesus is God, but he's not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but he's not the Son or the Father. They're different 
persons, not three different ways of looking at God. Christians believe in one God and three persons, Spirit, Son, Father. But I love in the creed that, and it, it exemplifies all three, but it begins with, I believe in God Almighty, the Father. Did you know in Islam, there are as many as 99 names used to describe God, but not one of these names refers to Allah as Father. Did you know that the Quran teaches that Allah is mighty and most holy, but never mentions him in a familial type relationship as we do in Christianity? You see, in contrast, Jesus taught his disciples to pray our Father who is in heaven. In fact, the word Father, God is referenced as Father 43 times just in the Gospel of Matthew alone. God wants to be recognized as our Father, the Father Almighty. And so the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now notice the second part of this creed and what we just celebrated this week. How timely is this? He goes on, the creed goes on to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So let's just take each one of those phrases real quick, and then we're going to turn to another passage. But I believe in Jesus Christ. Christ. Would you not say amen that there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved? Amen. Jesus is not just one way to heaven. Jesus' name, what does Jesus' name mean? Anyone know? Jesus' name means God is salvation or Yeshua. God saves, a savior, salvation. Matthew 121 says, she will bear a son. You shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, his name means salvation. Christ Contrary to popular opinion at the job site, Christ is not his last name, okay? Christ is his title. His title is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the one who came to save his people from sin and the wrath of God. In John 1:41, they say, we have found the Messiah. This is not just a Christian thing, like, oh yeah, we're just going to tack on the Messiah and the Jews have to go along with it. No, the Jews said in the first century, this is the Messiah. And so he is the Christ. Uh, he is God's only son. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Uh, that's a throwback to Genesis 22, where Abram gave up his own son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah, the uh, mountain of the Lord, the uh, place of sacrifice at Calvary. And then he says in the creed, Our Lord. And that means, we've learned that lately, when we confess that Christ is Lord, that means that he is sovereign, the sovereign, and the ruler over all things. In fact, Acts 10.36 says, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And Romans 6.23 and 10.9 say, this is a Christian confession. We say, Jesus is Lord. Uh, but notice those last two lines, that Jesus, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Very timely way to look, or time to look at this. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. You guys turn with me to Luke chapter 1. You guys good? Not so much? Well, even if you're not, we're going to Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Luke 1, starting in verse 26. Why is this important? Why is the virgin birth and being conceived by the Holy Spirit important? Can't we just believe that Jesus was like, born to Uncle Larry and he's a good guy, uh, that Joseph was his dad and maybe they misinterpreted some events? Do we lose anything if we lose the virgin birth? I would say, yeah, you lose Jesus. But 
Let's look at verse uh, 26 and get the, the, um, the scriptural backing for this. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. At our Christmas Eve service, we talked about how uh, Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, but they ended up in Bethlehem. Uh, verse 27 says that Gabriel was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So his ancestor, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Now notice what Gabriel does not say. Gabriel does not say, well, Joseph's basically, let me explain this to you, Mary. Joseph and you are going to have a baby and he's just going to be a great guy. He's going to be an amazing rabbi, just such a great, phenomenal teacher. That He's just going to be loving and grace-filled and help people. And so he's going to be, you know, the, the hope of Israel. No, this was not a natural birth. It says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, pay attention, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Notice that there's nothing miraculous about Elizabeth's conception, except that she's old, but this was not a virgin birth. If it was, he would have said, but it wasn't. So Mary's birth is quite distinct, uh, Mary's pregnancy. And so verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a great phrase. And the angel departed from her. Now, I want you to note two important things here. First, I want you to notice that Joseph was of the house of David. So the line of Messiah would come through the lineage of David, King David. But he was not the father. Mary is the second important part that, that I want you to note. is not as that she is a virgin. So this child would be in the line of David but not born through man. It would be born through woman. Remember in Genesis 3, it was from your seed will come one who would crush the serpent. The serpent crusher would come from the line of Eve. But this child to Mary would not be conceived in an ordinary natural way. He'd be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this would not be Joseph's son. Uh, Jesus' father would be God. Why is that important? Well, John Piper says this. He says, um, many people will try to say that the conception of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary is not essential in the doctrine of the Incarnation since Jesus would have been the Son of God even if the virgin birth weren't true. A lot of people teach that. Like, oh, just, just you know, give up the virgin birth. You don't lose anything. Yes, you do. You lose the deity of Jesus Christ, and that's, I think, important. Um, and he says, John Piper says, the words of Gabriel do not agree with that uh, mindset that Jesus was not born of a virgin. In answer to the question, how can a virgin conceive, Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
He says, Jesus can be called Son of God, Son of the Most High, precisely because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, so we need to understand the virgin birth and not shrink back or away from it. We need to lean into it and affirm it. Now, next week, we're going to go deeper into the Apostles' Creed at the next section, which speaks more of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to celebrate communion together as we look at the work of Jesus in his substitutionary atonement, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his intercession and second coming. And so we'll look at that um, next week. And I want to encourage you to find it online and to read through the Apostles' Creed uh, this week. But I think that this, uh, the reason we're doing this study is important for three reasons. So if you're taking note, I'd love for you to jot these three things down. As we close a, a year and as we open a new year, I, personally, I'm always reflecting back. So I kind of think back at the year and I go, what did I do this year? How was I a steward of my life? Like when I look back at 2020, did I get anything done? I'm like, well, I cleaned the garage, the pantry seven times. I learned a new skill. I can do underwater basket weaving now. I clocked about 10,000 hours on Netflix and I read more books than I wanted to or the books read me. Um, but it's important when we stop at the end of a year to kind of say like, like how did I steward my time? How is my walk with Christ? How am I living my life intentionally? purposely. And so I, I really want us to do this series for three reasons and, and really three challenges for us. Uh, the first one is this. I want to challenge you as we close this year and open 2021 to read your Bible and learn doctrine. I want to challenge you, if you've never read through the Bible, to begin this year. Uh, this week on Facebook and on our website, we're going to link an annual reading plan that I love to go through. And I want to challenge you, if you don't have a, a, a system that you've adopted to read through the Bible, do that this year. I challenge you. I encourage you to do that. Read the Bible and learn doctrine. There is no such thing as doctrineless Christianity. Now, some Christians will shy away from creeds or they'll be suspicious of them. Why are we studying a creed at church right now? What's the ulterior motive? There isn't an ulterior motive. Benjamin Myers points this out. He says, many churches are more comfortable with mission statements than with creeds. And he says this, the thing about a mission statement is you get to make it up for yourself. It's like writing your own wedding vows. But here's the paradox, he says. It's the individualized confession, like the personalized wedding vow, that ends up sounding like an echo of the wider society. Wow. You see, it's not just like, yeah, I'm just going to believe what I believe. No, we need to believe what Christians believe. We need to believe the truth that we find in the Apostles' Creed. And some people would say, well, hold on. Like, there's not even creeds in the Bible. And I would say, you're, you're mistaken. In fact, let me just give you a few on the screen. There are doctrinal creeds, statements of belief in the Bible. In fact, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is, is a creed the early church recited. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 10, is a glorious uh, announcement of the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 3, 16 are creeds that Paul was seemingly giving his young protege in the faith, this young pastor Timothy, for him to um, anchor his faith upon in the church. You might say, what about the Old Testament? Well, even the foundational, most important creed in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, even within it itself, uh, was a reminder for the Israelites 
to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to teach their children what they knew doctrinally. So even within that creed, there was an emphasis on, hey, if you've learned this, transmit it to others. It has always been God's intent that doctrine is embedded in family conversations, in casual walks, in robust discussions. It always has been and it always will be. God is, has always intended for his truths to be transmitted from one person to another to another. There's no such thing as faith divorced from doctrine. In other words, you can't believe if you don't know what you believe. And so we are to take what we know and share it with others. And the only way we can do that is to know what we believe. So I want to challenge you to read your Bible and to learn doctrine. The content of what we believe matters. But secondly, I want to challenge you as we close this year and turn the calendar, I want to challenge you to grow in your love for God. I would say it this way, to love God is to know God. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer begins with these words that have impacted my life for decades. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, what we know about God is ultimately linked to our love for him. All throughout scripture, the word for intimate love is translated no. So when we read in Genesis that Adam lay with his wife, that he knew his wife, we know what that means, right? He knew his wife. Uh, that knowledge was not trivia. That knowledge was a place of intimacy. So to know is to love, and to love is to know. One of the reasons I love my wife, Jen, we've been married now, coming up on 21 years, which is crazy. The reasons, one of the reasons I love my wife is because I'm learning to know her. I'm not there yet, but I'm learning to know her more. And I know her more now than when we first met. Now I know her, not just vague facts about her. Like, okay, her name is Jen, and she's brunette, and she's, uh, her name is Jen. Like, I, growing in your love for someone implies knowledge. Now some Christians hear the word theology, and they go, oh, okay, great, seminary in the pulpit. And they get a little triggered about it. Uh, they bristle at the thought of, the, I don't need to know theology. I just need to know Jesus. I, I don't want to know theology. I just want to know Jesus. And I say, well, what exactly about Jesus do you need to know? Well, I just need to know Jesus. Okay. Is it his pre-existent, uh, pre-incarnate existence from the foundation of the world? Is that what you want to know or need to know about Jesus? Maybe it was his virgin birth and advent foretold from the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe you meant his humanity and deity, also known as the hypostatic union. Was it his sinlessness or his mediatorial work as high priest in the order of Melchizedek? Was it his intercession, his propitiation, his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension? Maybe his ongoing work at the right hand of the Father on behalf of his church or his consummate return for his bride and the end of all things? Which one of those aspects do you need to know about Jesus? Because you're doing doctrine when you're doing those things. So if we say, I love God, but you're unwilling to get to know God, you're unwilling to lean in to grow in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then you can't say, I really want to love him. I really want to know him. Uh, not merely facts about God. I'm not saying that we know trivia, but we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord by getting to know and to love him. So I want to challenge you to grow in your love for God this year as you grow in doctrine. But thirdly, this is really for us as a church. And I want to challenge us 
uh, as we do this study and as we begin a new year, to seek clarity and symmetry, not ambiguity and division. The church today needs clarity and symmetry because what we have is ambiguity and division. Let me unpack those two things. Uh, ambiguity, what do I mean by that? Well, lots of churches are ambiguous uh, or fuzzy, cloudy, muddy about what they believe. Uh, and now, why would you do that? Why would you be fuzzy or cloudy about what you believe when you preach from the pulpit? Well, there'd be a main reason why you would do that. So if you get up in the pulpit as a pastor and you don't want to clarify or use words like sin, hell, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, how you're saved, what defines a Christian, what the primary issues are. If I don't want to talk about that, what does that mean? Why would I not want to do that? Uh, the reason would be to not upset the apple cart, but let people continue to come, continue to come, and to grow and build a big edifice, a big building, a big church. That would be the only reason I can see, to be muddy and unclear about primary issues. You sit down with the pastor, what do you believe about these essentials? And it's like nailing jello to a wall. You can't really get an actual say. Two people who totally disagree about um, a doctrinal issue sit down in the church and they leave and go, the pastor agrees with me. Uh, because what he said, you could take either way to believe. Fuzzy, muddy, ambigu uh, ambiguous. Uh, and so we need to express clarity on what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, we believe these things because the scripture communicates these things, not just because Christians are supposed to, it's because the Bible teaches us on primary issues. Now, secondary issues, things that are not salvific, not a part of the Apostles' Creed, then we should be gracious about them. We should be building bridges, not barriers, and we should praise God for the truths that unite us. And so what happens on the other end of the pendulum is division. So as we're building clarity, now we start putting clarity in secondary issues, and we start getting mad at each other because we believe differently on the secondary, third, tertiary issues. So we're with someone, and we go, man, I love you. You're my brother in Christ. I love our fellowship. We have koinonia. That's a Christian word, koinonia. We've got this fellowship. Wait, you believe differently than me about the gifts of the Spirit? Die, heretic. You know, and we kind of treat each other divisively. And Christians today, sadly, are defined by what they're against rather than what they're for. Now, I'll say this. Don't misunderstand me. Division over primary uh, salvific issues is a good thing, is a healthy thing. We should die on that hill. We should fight. If you're at the gas station and a guy lights a vape, you should fight, okay? You should say something. You're an idiot. What are you doing? Put that out. And so if someone in the name of Jesus says, Jesus was not God, he's just a good moral teacher, you go, that is incorrect. Put the fire out, that is false. We're willing to die on that hill. But on the secondary issues, we should seek to have symmetry. These are the lines that define us. Let's walk together in agreement. Let's move together. We can call a space Christianity, this is. So let's have symmetry. And let's see what the church can do when we're united on the essentials and focused on the gospel. Albert Moeller says, all Christians believe more, more than it's contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. Amen. And so we define the lines and we walk together in symmetry uh, and not ambiguity or division. And as we close, uh, I want to consider the words of Pastor Matt Chandler. I love this optimism. Uh, he says this as we close. He says, we're a global people. 
This should excite us. We're global people. People all over the earth will gather this weekend because they share the beliefs expressed in the Apostles' Creed. They'll rejoice in it. They'll be shaped by it. And massive numbers of them will recite the creed together. We, the church, have been woven into something much bigger than us. And we need to understand that. The fabric created by God makes us stronger than any of us can ever be on our own. It's diverse, it's beautiful, and the church is global. And here's what he goes on to say. As Christianity in the United States, having enjoyed great favor the past 150 years, now starts to fall out of favor. Any effort to define ourselves by secondary beliefs must also fade away. The creed shows us what's primary in the Christian faith. We're a creedal people united by truth that supersedes any other differences in our culture and sets us apart as a distinct community of faith. So my prayer for us as we study this and as we open up scripture is that we grow in our understanding of doctrine, that we grow in our love for the Lord, and that we as a church would seek to build his kingdom as we learn these truths together for his glory and our community's good. Amen? Let's stand together, and we're going to sing and declare what we believe. But I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for what we've studied today, the truths that have been affirmed from generation to generation as martyr after martyr went to their deaths affirming the truths that we uh, glean from the Apostles' Creed that is just rooted in our Bibles. And so, Lord, we thank you for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that we now have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to stand up and be willing to die on certain hills. Lord, forgive the weakness and the softness of your church, that we shrink back from heralding good news and proclaiming uh, unwavering truth in a world today that says truth is relative and it's it's you do you you do your truth lord we have a truth that is universal that is greater than our personal preference and lord we thank you for uh, what your word has instructed us today i pray that we would continue to have our faith rooted in the personal work of christ and we thank you for our creator god the father almighty who created all things we thank you for jesus christ our lord the son uh, who was conceived of the virgin uh, and born to us. Lord, we thank you today for these truths. I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of doctrine, grow in our love for you, and be willing to um, build unity uh, with the body of Christ in the essential doctrines of the faith. Lord, help us to advance the gospel, not to fight one another, not to get off on a rabbit trail, but to be all about the most important thing, which is the gospel. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time. And Lord, as we sing this song, we continue to affirm what we believe and we place our faith in you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.